Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In the parched black desert of northeastern Jordan, archaeologists recently unearthed a stone hearth containing loaves of flatbread more than 14,000 years old. Samples contain wild einkorn, ancestor of modern wheat. Bread-like discs were likely not an everyday foodstuff for hunter-gatherers, but in the centuries since, wheat has become the most widely grown cereal crop in the world. That's why researchers at Utah State University are working to protect the global wheat supply. Quoting there from Utah State Magazine, their spring 2019 issue. The title is Feeding the World. We'll talk about food security, talk about uh, organics and uh, GMOs, and a lot of uh, topics with David Hole, who is a professor in the Department of Plants, Soils, and Climate at Utah State University. Hope you join us following the news.
This episode of Access Utah first aired in January of this year. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Quoting now from Utah State uh, Magazine, this is an article uh, by Kristen Munson and Matthew Jensen. In the parched black desert of northeastern Jordan, archaeologists recently unearthed a stone hearth containing loaves of flatbread more than 14,000 years old. The samples contained wild corn, an ancestor of modern wheat. Bread-like discs were likely not an everyday foodstuff for hunter-gatherers, but in the centuries since, wheat has become the most widely grown cereal crop in the world. That's why researchers at Utah State University are working to protect the global wheat supply. One of those uh, researchers is my uh, guest uh, in this program. Uh, he is uh, David Hole, who is uh, in the Department of uh, Plant Soils and uh, Climate and uh, works with uh, securing the uh, wheat uh, supply. Um, David Hole, welcome back to the program. Well, thank you. It's nice to be here. Let me situate your microphone a little closer to you oh, there. Okay. All right. Um, so, um, as, as you said in this article, that uh, we have three grasses, rice, wheat, and corn, that comprise 80% of our calories worldwide. Yeah, and all three of those are pretty closely related. Some of them, I mean, when I say closely related, 30 billion years back to a, to, or 30, I'm sorry, 30 million years back to a common ancestor. But, uh, you know, a lot of the genes are the same still. Um, so uh, the other thing I learned from this article is that, relatively speaking, wheat is you know, somewhat new, I mean, in, in air quotes. Well, as, as far as the, the species that we, that we use for most of our food, wheat's one of the, wheat and barley are two of the older ones. Actually, corn is probably the newcomer on the block. Oh. Corn was domesticated probably only about 5,000 years ago in North America, Mexico, and then uh, to some extent even in parts of the U.S. But wheat, wheat is, you know, we, we talk about ancient grains, and one of my friends likes to say barley is the, the ancientest of the ancient grains. And, uh, you know, wheat and barley both originated in about that same area, the Fertile Crescent, what is now Syria, Iraq, Iran, and Turkey, um, where most of the germplasm variability exists even to this day. Mm. Uh, germplasm, what no, would you So when that? we talk about germplasm, we're talking about all the different all the different genes, all the different varieties, different alleles. Um, uh, the term allelomorph was was coined after long after Mendel wrote his kind of seminal paper on genetics to to mention that one thing that Mendel had noticed was that you know in some cases a plant carries uh, one type of a gene or one form of a gene to make it tall, and another another plant might carry a, a different form that makes it short. And so the, the term allelomorph or different types, different forms of these genes. And, you know, a diploid plant can only carry, a diploid individual like humans can only carry two of those. Good example is the the ABO blood type in, in humans. You know, we have three different allelomorphs, three different alleles, the A, the B, and the O. But each of us can only carry two of those. I, I carry OO. My, one of my daughters carries B something, either BB or, or B with, with the O. And, and so because not any one plant can carry all the different types, we need lots of different plants to, to be sure that we have all of the variability that exists. And so we collectively call that big group 
uh, germplasm. Mm. And it's important that we maintain it and maintain the diversity that's out there. Uh, so to tell me a little bit about how, how, how wheat came to be. So einkorn, you mentioned einkorn. That's, that's Triticum monococcum. That was one of the three different pretty closely related grass species that crossed to make wheat. Um, so einkorn crossed with uh, a, a second likely Triticum searsii, but the second one's not absolutely known for sure right now. And that cross happened naturally, and the offspring were sterile, kind of like uh, between a horse and a, a donkey making a mule. But somewhere along the line, the chromosomes doubled, which restored the fertility. And so now we had uh, a plant that had all the chromosomes of both of those species. And then that species crossed to a third species. And again, the, the, the first hybrid between those was sterile. But again, the chromosomes doubled. And so now we end up with a, a plant, Triticum estivum, which is our common bread wheat. And it has all of the chromosomes of all three of these species. Each of these species had um, a, a normal chromosome number of seven. So when they, were, when they had two copies, one from the mother, one from the father, they had 14 chromosomes. So wheat has three times that, or 42 chromosomes. Mm. Uh, so pretty complex. Um, it's, 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 genetically, it's, yeah. Yeah, genetically, there's a lot of duplication, and so it makes it difficult sometimes to do some of the genetic studies we'd like to do with it. Yeah. Interesting. I, uh, uh, from now on, I'll, I'll periodically think of that when I'm eating some bread, I guess, right? <laughs> right, but not pasta, because pasta is a different wheat species. That's a different wheat species. Yeah, it only okay. had, it was right. likely the result of the, the first cross between the, the first two plants. So yeah. it's only a tetraploid. And therein lies a tale and some vulnerability, right? Uh, it, was, it was, what, uh, 2018 that the wheat genome was, was mapped? Right, and so we have, a good, we have a good reference genome for wheat. But, you know, again, it only, it only captures a, a small part of the, the total variability. Hmm. So one of the things you work on is uh, protecting wheat uh, from, um, how, how would you call it, uh, you know, things like dwarf bunt. The, 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 I was going to say pests, the, yeah, the, the so problems. Dwarf bunt's a fungal disease. Uh, we also call it dwarf smut, but that's, that's not something you want to Google. And we have a, a smut yeah. and bunt conference every couple of years. Uh, in 2018, it was here in, in Utah. Two years before that, it was in uh, Izmir, Turkey, and, and two years before that in Copenhagen. But we were happy to host it uh, just, just a couple years ago. And it brings all the researchers working on different bunts and smut diseases from, from rice to, to corn. You know, there's a, there's a smut in corn that's, that's considered a delicacy. Wheat lacoche is corn smut. It's a, it's a uh, Ustalago fungus, but some people think it's delicious. Uh, you know, we eat, we eat mushrooms, so not all fungi are bad, but the, the dwarf bunt that gets wheat is a, uh, doesn't have a lot going for it. it. It has a bad fishy smell, trimethylamine, so it has a bad smell. It, it's, it, the spores are very black and sooty or, you know, smutty. That's where our term smut comes from is this kind of filthy, sooty uh, appearance of the spores. Uh, and it completely replaces the kernel with these spores. So we're, you know, we're trying to, to keep resistance, genetic resistance to, to these two com pretty common and related diseases. One is dwarf smut or dwarf bunt that you mentioned. The other one is called common bunt. Um, and they 
They infect very differently, but they're very closely related. If we have resistance to one, we probably have resistance to the other. Mm. Now, you said in this article, in the 1920s, 80% of rail cars arriving in Ogden were rated as smutty. Right, and that was the beginning of the breeding program at Utah State University. Mm -hmm. That was when we bought that field out on 800 East between, you know, uh, 1800 North and 1600 North. And that's where we've been doing uh, plant breeding pretty much ever since focused primarily on bred wheats and resistance to, to dwarf bond. So that uh, I've driven past that many times. That's been going for 100 years? That has. It's been going for 100 years. It's very uniform soil. It's probably the, the you know, and I've done agriculture research in, in Texas and Iowa, and I don't think I found a more wonderful place to, to grow wheat if we, can, if we can keep the buildings off it. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the key. It's always the key. Uh, the, the progress, right? Development. Um, so, um, in nineteen twenties, eighty percent of rail cars arriving in Ogden rated as smutty. The then progress, right? right. That was the be- that was the beginning of the breeding program. It it pretty much those early plant breeders here at, at Utah State, uh, Rollo Woodward, Del Tingey, and uh, they were some of the ones that used that. Uh, some of the lines from from Syria, actually Iraq. Uh, but near the Syrian border that had resistance to this disease because that is where the disease kind of originated and that's where most of our resistance genes come from. Um, And they developed the very first variety uh, in this intermountain region that was resistant to dwarf bunt. And, you know, the variety name was Relief. And it really was a relief to the farmers. There There were no treatments, there were no chemicals that could protect us against this disease, and we finally had uh, a genetic resistance that, mm. that worked really well. Uh, so you have said we now have a generation of farmers who've grown up without ever really seeing smut. Right. I've had some calls. When I, w- when I first came here to Utah State, about 10 years in, I had a call from a farmer who had noticed uh, some kind of black sooty smoke coming out of his combine when he was, when he was threshing his wheat. He remembered hearing about dwarf bunt from his father and was kind of afraid that, that it had come back. I, when I asked him what variety he was growing, um, I was pretty convinced that it wasn't dwarf bunt because that variety still had resistance. But I went out to his farm and looked around, and there was another fungal disease called flag smut that infects the, one of the leaves of, of wheat, and that's what he had. And while it uh, can reduce the yields, it's not nearly as uh, destructive a disease as, as dwarf bunt is. Mm-hmm. So that being the case, the generation farmers, some of whom have never seen smut, that's great progress, uh, right? It is. I keep, a, I keep, you know, I grow a smut nursery here every year and we infect it uh, artificially and we, we keep maintaining uh, resistance and susceptibility by evaluating lines from all over the world. So if they, you know, if they ever want to see it, we can, we can usually show it to them. And then we'll still see it if I grow a susceptible line out in the state and we get the conditions for it, the disease is still in the soil. It's still there and it's still viable and we'll still see natural infections occasionally. Mm-hmm. Now, you might say, oh, well, you know, that's nice for the individual farmer. That's great. Uh, you know, higher yield, uh, you know, better crop. You're going to get, uh, you know, better better return. This This does affect all of us, right? We're all eating wheat or rice or corn, and then most of us here in the, the U.S. are eating wheat. 
Um, and uh, I wonder if you could tie this into, um, you know, feeding the world, the title of the article here. Well, you know, all of these, all of these uh, grasses are closely related, and a lot of these diseases are similar. The, the, the corn smut I mentioned, Ustilagomates, is a different genus than dwarf bunt. And there are also some rice bunts and rice smuts as well. Um, one of the biggest issues in wheat, is, which doesn't affect us here in Utah quite so much, is some of the rusts. So leaf rust, stripe rust, and stem rust are all very devastating diseases. Um, we don't get them as much here in Utah because our winters are cold enough to kill off the spores. And then by the time new spores arrive from the Pacific Northwest or from Southern California or Mexico in the summer, uh, we're hot and dry enough that they can't infect. Uh, but some years we still see them. And stem rust is one that it would not, our, our hot summers would not protect us from. Mm. And I have seen some stem rust in, in Utah, and a lot of farmers spray fungicides to protect against leaf rust and stripe rust and stem rust. So, you know, I mean, from a plant breeding standpoint, I could say uh, job security, but there are lots of diseases that affect all of these different grasses, uh, rice and wheat and maize. Rust is a rust is a major disease also on, on maize or corn. Mm. Uh, oddly enough, there doesn't seem to be much rust on rice, and it'd be really nice to know why. Mm. Yeah, that would be very nice to know. Going to put this in perspective, um, so in the 1950s and 60s, agricultural advancements are credited with uh, saving from starvation one billion people. Some estimates say that uh, the world's wheat supply will need to double to keep pace with population growth in the future. Yeah, not only, I mean, double because we, we're not only going to have more people, but we're going to have less land growing. We talked about the, you know, development of agricultural land, and, and particularly here in Utah, the land that, that has access to water where we could irrigate and create higher yields is the most prone to development, and, and we're losing you know, we're losing that farmland at a, at a pretty alarming rate. Mm. So, um, you know, for example, with smuts, um, uh, fungicides are, uh, or at least have been effective, right? So we have a number of fungicides for some of the rust diseases, leaf rust and stripe rust. But currently there is only one fungicide that will protect wheat against dwarf bunt. And that, the chemical name is difenaconazole. It just came off patent about a, a year or so ago, so it's been out for about 20 years. Um, but anytime you're relying on one single chemical to, to protect against a disease, my philosophy is I'd rather incorporate the protection in the genetics of the plant. Saves the farmers money. They don't have to, to treat the seeds with this. It's a fairly expensive chemical. Uh, and certainly for our organic growers, and we have a lot of organic wheat production in Utah, they cannot use these seed treatments to protect their plants. Mm. I wanted to ask you about organic. So organic, there are some limitations, right? If right. you want to seed, go organic, you, you... Know, Seed treatments are not allowed, and fungicide applications are not allowed. So, you know, it's really important that as geneticists, we try to do a good job of keeping good disease-resistant packages for, for the diseases we have in this area. Mm. Now, as organic farming ramps up, um, and I think it's still a fairly small percentage overall, isn't it? It is. Uh, certainly nationwide, it's a, a small percentage. But what, we've, what we found with wheat is it's, the, it's found in those areas 
where we're really dry, where we're marginal for wheat production anyway. So your yields are not limited by fertilizer. Uh, your yields are limited by water. Hmm. And in that case, you know, it doesn't pay to put fertilizer on. And it, you know, if you don't have to put fungicides on uh, and you can control your weeds because there's not a lot of water, there's not as many weeds, um, turns out you're doing organic anyway. You might as well get the price premium. And, hmm. and so Western Nebraska... Uh, is is pretty big in that, and and then also in the west part of Box Elder County here in Utah, and then down in the Monticello Eastland area of Utah, down in southeastern Utah, we also have some organic production there as well. Hmm. So uh, organic, there's some vulnerabilities there, right? You're not going to spray fungicides or, or 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 whatnot. Is that so that the, depends totally then on on genetic resistance right so it does if it uh, I mean there are management practices that you can use to try to to try to eliminate some diseases planting planting dates for dwarf bunt if you plant a little bit later uh, it can help but planting later also makes snow mold more prevalent if you end up with a year where you have a lot of snow cover and snow mold so while there are some management practices you know the the best thing is to try to incorporate genetic resistance. But that means we have to have it and find it. Hmm. If you just joined us, we're uh, talking with David Hole. He's a professor in the uh, Department of Plant, Soils, and Climate at Utah State University. Um, and he works uh, with uh, protecting um, uh, crops uh, from diseases. So wheat and uh, what, do you work with rice as well? Or uh, Well, I, I've worked with rice some. Uh, I, I just finished a, a Fulbright fellowship in Cambodia and worked with some some students there that were working on rice and and cassava, which is not one of our cereal grains. Uh, but I did my I did my PhD with corn, and then came to Utah State to to work on wheat, and also work some on barley. Hmm. So we're we're breeding winter barley and and winter wheat now at Utah State. So eighty percent of our calories worldwide come from these three grasses, right? Uh, wheat, rice, and uh, Forget the other one, maize, maize, and, or, corn. And maize, maize or corn. Um, could we adapt that if those three grasses were wiped out? Oh, I you, think it'd be pretty difficult to adapt. Some of our tuber crops, yams, cassava, potatoes, they're they're high in starch, so they're high in energy. And you know, yams and cassava are tropical. Potatoes are more temperate. So we 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 probably try to use some of those and those are not grasses those are all what we call broadleaves or dicot plants uh, but i think it'd be very difficult if if we lost rice wheat and corn mm-hmm. or do, even just one of those because those hit the sweet spot on, the, on what we need to calorie wise or because we're i guess the other reason is we're we're making the, the whole all all the industries are are geared toward those grasses right well, yeah, most of our most of our commercial production worldwide is one of those grasses. So, rice production in in Asia and Southeast Asia, particularly in the more tropical regions, and of course in the U.S., Arkansas is our number one rice producing state. Uh, but you find in those areas the the culture the the diet is based on on that. When I was in Cambodia. The, the Khmer way of saying let's eat or let's let's eat is nyambai, which literally translates to eat rice. Mm. So when you're saying let's eat, you're really just saying eat rice. Mm-hmm. And I had a I have a, a Cambodian a graduate student that came here to do her masters with me, 
And, you know, I, I joke with her that if she wasn't eating rice, she didn't think she was eating a meal. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, uh, food is very much embedded in the culture, isn't it? It is. Yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, trying to get a culture to accept a new food is very difficult. It's, you know, in temperate areas like we are here, rice uh, is not consumed nearly as much as wheat is. Mm. Well, talk about um, plant breeding. This is this is the old way of uh, of uh, genetic modification, right? Right. There's no, there are no genetically modified, as we would define GMO or genetically engineered. There are no uh, genetically modified cultivars of wheat grown commercially anywhere in the world, and so plant breeding is still done. What we would say conventional plant breeding that is crossing two parents. Uh, getting the progeny from those parents and trying to find progeny that are superior to to both of the parents. We have a lot of more molecular genetic tools that we can use now, marker selection and genomic selection that are both relatively due. We've been breeding wheat for for 10,000 years, and we've only known about genetics since about the, the 1920s, Mendel published his paper in 1869, but it was pretty much ignored for till the early 1900s uh, when it was rediscovered, and that kind of that kind of changed the the science of plant breeding. I still think of plant breeding as both an art and a science. There, there's still something about walking through, looking at these plants, uh, and finding the one that's that's the prettiest. That's and that prettiest might have to do with the, the size of the seed or the, the size of the head, how many seeds there are, how resistant it is to diseases, how it tillered, how high it was, how tall it was. But that's there's still an art in, in conventional plant mm-hmm. breeding. And you've been doing this for, what, 30 years? Or I've been at Utah State for right at 30 years now. And before that, I, I worked on soybeans at Iowa State for my master's and and Mays for a PhD and postdoc at Texas A and M. By the way, and we'll come back to this. Um, you said that uh, currently the, 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 there's no wheat uh, being grown. You know, there's no wheat GMOs. Right. What what, what crops do have? Well, are, corn, are of you, course, and soybeans are okay. are largely genetically modified. I I kind of get different answers about rice depending on who I talk to. Um, I've talked to some scientists, colleagues in China that have said, no, we don't have any GMO rice. And I've talked to others that say, of course we do. So I, I'm not sure that um, that I could give you an answer on that. But, you know, canola, we have a long history of, of modifying plants to, to make them do what we want them to do. Mm-hmm. And this genetic modification is is just another tool. Every technology has, you know, pluses and minuses and things we have to watch out for and things that we can exploit. Mm. I was going to ask you what your view of GMOs was. Well, it sounds like you hold the view that uh, this is just a natural extension. Uh, you know, from the standpoint, <laughs> I have kind of a, I have, I have a, a, a kind of a strange feeling of it. Safety-wise, I don't think there's an issue with, with GMOs. I think that the most dangerous part of consuming a genetically modified crop is driving to the grocery store to buy it because uh, we know how many people are killed in automobile accidents every year. And that's, you know, there's there's definitely a danger anytime you get in a car. So if you have to drive to the grocery store to buy a GMO, yeah, there's a risk associated with it. Um, but one of, the, one of the risks that aren't 
what we would normally consider as consumers is this privatization of the germplasm we talked about, of these patenting genes and limiting access from private companies uh, and, and public breeders. And so I think there are some issues there that, that still are going to have to be worked out to, to truly make our, our food supply more secure. So one of the arguments, uh, or the discomfort from from many who uh, are suspicious of GMOs, is this idea of uh, you know moving moving on from natural, you know natural plant breeding to introducing quote unquote technology. Yeah, it, it's it, it's a it's a argument I suppose that goes way back. Mendel, when he was originally looking at this concept of heredity, uh, started working by crossing mice in his monk cell in Brun, Czech, Czech, what is now Brun, Czech Republic. Um, but his bishop told him he couldn't do that because that was, that was playing God. So he started working with peas, and he wrote to one of his friends in a letter that said, I, I'm now crossing peas because the bishop doesn't realize that plants have sex too. <laughs> and so he was able to, to get around that. But, but yeah, there are issues, there are cultural issues and, and religious issues with even conventional breeding. And so... Yeah, technology, technology is always, uh, you know, maybe embraced by some and and not by others for various mm-hmm. reasons. The, it was, you're not worried, a genie out of the bottle, kind of a thing. I, I, I I'm not. I mean, I I consume lots of genetically modified corn anytime I eat uh, uh, any, any number of corn products and corn oils and and all kinds of things that we consume, and we've been doing that for thirty years now, uh, but. You know, I I think any technology we need to look at it very carefully and be sure that we're that we're using it wisely and that we're at least considering the the potential uh, risks. Uh, certainly, I don't think that people that that don't want GMOs and and they can you know they can avoid GMOs by by eating organic or growing organic. I I don't think they're crazy. It's not something that I particularly do, but. Uh, I think everybody has a, a right to choose what they want to consume. Hmm. I've just joined us uh, again. We're talking with David Hole, who is a professor in the uh, Department of Plant, Soils, and Climate at Utah State University. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We'll take a break when we come back more with David Hole, um, and we'll get into talking in the next segment. Uh, beyond food, we'll uh, talk about one of his other activities. Uh, he flies drones. We'll talk about that. And uh, later in the program, we'll remember our friend Ron Helstern by hearing one of his Wild About Utah segments. And we'll hear a segment from one of my favorite interviews uh, with New Zealand explorer Helen Thayer. All of that to come after the break.
Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Uh, on this part of the program, we are talking with David Hull, professor in USU's Department of Plants, Soils, and Climate. This episode of the program was first broadcast January of this year. So I want to get back to uh, this idea of, of uh, security of our food supply. Um, uh, so we talked about fungicides, and, uh, and you were saying that it's you know, more secure to you know to breed plants that are genetically um, resistant to to the fungus. Um, and you you uh, told the story earlier on that I think this was 1970s. This 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 plant was discovered in Iraq near the Syrian border, from which has come. Uh, that was that was discovered to be resistant, right? Right. Well, it's, so this plant, PI seventeen eighty three eighty three, the PI stands for plant introduction, and I should put in a plug for our national plant germplasm system. Up in Aberdeen, Idaho, we have the world collection of of wheat and barley, and so that's one of the great resources that I have is to be able to drive up there and and look at these. But even if you can't drive up there, you can go online and you can look at all of the selections that have been collected from around the world, and anybody in the world can request. Uh, small samples of these, and they'll they'll ship them out to you. And so, 178383 was a horrible-looking plant. It's very spindly. It doesn't yield very well. The seeds are not very large. It falls over with the slightest breeze. But it turned out to be it had three different resistance genes to dwarf bunt: BT8, BT9, and BT10. And it also had some resistance to snow mold and resistance to stripe rust. And so this one plant was just a phenomenal resource for incorporating the resistance to it. So we have to cross to it to get those good alleles, those good genes, and then we have to try to get all the bad genes that make it such a horrible plant otherwise uh, replaced by a different parent. And so that's really what plant breeding is all about, kind of like herding cats or getting all your ducks in a row. Hmm. <laughs> that's a nice visual here, you're herding cats. Um so aren't we a bit vulnerable if, if everything's based on this one plant breed from Iraq? Well, right. So we have continued to look for new genes, and we have found uh, a couple of others. One is BT12, which my most recent uh, variety release, Curlew, uh, has incorporated that gene. That's from a different plant introduction. It still comes from this uh, Iraq, Turkey, Syria area. Turkey, actually, I think. And um, and it, it's a it's a gene that so far has not been overcome by the disease, but you know it's an arms race in a way. The diseases change, and we have to we have to find the new resistance genes that the plants have also come up with. Uh, and so, you know, we have because this disease really only exists in certain areas. Uh, in particular areas that have a lot of snow cover. So one of the reasons that we have a disease nursery here in Utah is that, you know, it's under snow right now. That's when the infection happens, right now. Uh, it takes a long time for the spores to germinate, uh, between three to eight weeks for the infection to happen. And we need good snow cover during that entire time so the temperatures aren't too cold or aren't too warm. Um, and we get that here. And they get that in parts of China and they get that in parts of Europe at the higher elevations, and then down in Argentina as well. So this dwarf bunt disease is only found in, in these kind of areas. But common bunt, which is also related, is found everywhere because the infection is different. 
Uh, and so it's nice that we can have one resistance gene that will protect us against both of those diseases. Mm. So you mentioned arms race. Is this, would the analogy be us and antibiotics? In a way, yes. Mm. But, I mean, the, one of the nice things we have going for us for, for dwarf bond and common bond is that they only have one sexual cycle per year. You know, with with the rust fungi, they can go through and, and reproduce several times during the year. And, of course, with microbes, uh, many times even within a couple of months. So the recombination rate, the ability to create new races and new types of virulence uh, is greater with, with uh, many of our bacteria than it is with even some of our other fungi. And, and dwarf bunt's nice from a plant breeding standpoint, because it only has really one one chance a year to, to create new types. Mm. So pulling back to kind of a, the, the broad view of a food security, what um, what advances would you like to see or maybe, maybe you're working on to, to make our food more secure? Well, before I retire, which is, you know, coming up in not too long, I would like one of these bunt resistance genes, we call the BT genes, to be identified and cloned. We've been mapping them, uh, researchers in Canada working on it, uh, researchers in Europe and Idaho, along with, with me, the breeder in Idaho, uh, Dr. Jen Lee Chen and, and Dr. Juliet Marshall work also with these diseases in cooperation with our research here. We need to get one of these, we need to get one of these genes so that we can actually see what it's doing. How is it creating resistance? And that means we need not just to know where it is, uh, but to actually have the gene and have the sequence to it and, and know what the protein looks like. Hmm. Um, so one of the things I had noticed in this article, you were talking about, uh, you know, securing our food supply and, and advances that we have and have not uh, made. One, one that you mentioned was that we were I don't know, promised, but, but, but uh, given hope that perhaps uh, through genetics uh, we could have uh, crops that needed much less water, that, that we'd have had kind of slow progress on that. Well, I think, I mean, and that comes back to the, the genetic modification. You know, genetic modification has been around now for, for over 30 years, and there is a lot of potential there for crops that can grow without as much water or crops that don't need as high a fertility, but you know, in 30 years, what we've gotten is pretty much herbicide resistance genes and, uh, you know, Bacillus thuringiensis uh, genes that have been incorporated because those are the ones that make the most money for the private companies. So, you know, we, we've talked about genetic modification and there's old school genetic modification, which was what's been done for the last 30 years. But there's this new gene editing system that has come out recently, CRISPR-Cas9, that is going to make it, I think, much cheaper and much simpler to do gene editing. And so perhaps we'll begin to see uh, some of these promises and potentials for uh, editing the genomes of, of our crop plants uh, to finally get some... Uh, hopefully we won't just get glow in the dark uh, corn plants or something yeah, right because, because i mean we're i think we're just a few years away from from high school kids being able to buy a kit and do gene editing on plants uh, we may not even be that far away uh, but uh, it it will it will take it out of the big the big pharmaceutical and big chemical companies and it's going to bring it back to the grassroots i think 
So, so you, do you think we really will get there? High school kids can. I, well, I, 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 that's I sus- not that's not hyperbole. I don't yeah. think it is. Uh-huh. I, I suspect that there are already science fair projects using CRISPR Cas9 to, okay. to gene edit plants. Well, now you've made me nervous. It's, <laughs> get high school kids a hell to this. Although you know that, that there are futures, so yeah, they are. Uh, yeah, yeah, I could, yeah, I could see that. That's what would attract uh, some high school kid a glow in the dark. Uh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, wheat, right. But you're still not nervous about uh, I, you genetic know, modifications. No, I don't think so. We've been genetic, like I say, we've been genetically modifying plants for a, for a very long time, and uh, certainly there are plants that you know there was a there was a normally bred, a conventionally bred cucumber plant a number of years ago uh, that it was in seed production, and you can imagine producing large amounts of seeds of cucumbers. You have to, they have to shred these cucumbers and wash, wash the seeds out. And when the, when the workers were doing that, they noticed that they were all getting blisters on their hands because there's a natural chemical in cucumbers that is a skin irritant. And, and as this variety was being ready for release, they realized that that chemical was in very high levels because of the skin was being blistered of these workers producing the seed. And so it, it was not released. We, we don't, you know, it doesn't make sense to release something that, that's, that's going to harm your, your customer, your consumer. Mm-hmm. I think we have a pretty good, you know, I'm, I'm far more concerned about, uh, you know, you look at the number of recalls of, of food that we've had, and it's not because the food was grown poorly. It's, it's, our, it's our handling and our high throughput to produce low-cost food. Hmm. Now, before we close, um, I, I want to go to something completely different. Okay. We were talking before we uh, went on the air. I noticed uh, uh, we go to the website, your, your profile here. Um, you, we've got your educational background, genetics and plant breeding and so forth. <clears throat> then we have your certification as a remote pilot. Um, so you, you, you fly drones. I, I've used drones. We have a, a couple of drones in, in my project, the, one of which our, our weed scientist also uses and um, one of our soil physicists because the, the you know we're basically plant breeders are lazy. We're always looking for cheaper and easier ways to do things. Uh, and so, you know, my idea was if we can find a particular wavelength that these plants, once they're infected with dwarf bunt, might be able to distinguish them from a drone, then I could fly over my disease nursery and save a, a few weeks of walking through it and looking at individual plants. Um, so far, yeah, well, not not so much luck on that. Mm. Uh, but certainly, I think... Uh, the weed scientist uh, Corey Ransom has has been using it to try to identify sp- specific invasive weeds. So it's it's been kind of fun playing around, and that's one of the nice things about being a professor at a public institution is that sometimes you can just do some things that you couldn't do if you were in a private company because you know they're probably not going to to make a profit real soon. But sometimes they work out, and sometimes they can be pretty useful. Hmm. What what do you think about this? Um I just heard it on NPR this morning. Uh, this in Colorado, Nebraska, they got unidentified drones. In fact, they've got a task force to try to try to find out why, why these drones are flying around. Yeah, well, your guess is probably as good as mine. Some people have suggested that it might be a, a chemical company looking at uh, looking at ground and trying to identify places where there might be oil or shale oil or something, or who knows? But 
you know, when I took my test, I had to I had to show that or at least know that my drone has to be in visual contact with me at all times. So, yeah, I don't know I don't know where these things are coming from. Yeah. <laughs> um, anything else you'd like to say about uh, security of our food supply and genetics? I'm I'm optimistic. I think uh, because I I know there's there's young plant breeders coming up, and I'd have to say, you know, I got into plant breeding because I recognize that we're going to have a larger population to feed, and we're going to have to have plants that that can produce more with less inputs. And certainly, from the standpoint of protecting our environment, uh, we have to come up with management and production systems that that are less invasive to our environment than than we have now and plant breeding is one way to accomplish that and and I'm I'm optimistic that that our future plant breeders will be able to kind of take the mantle and and run with it well, thanks for the work you do. We've been talking with uh, Professor David Hole. He's a professor in the uh, Department of Plant Soils and Climate at Utah State University. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Coming up, uh, we will uh, finalize the program by uh, listening to uh, a Wild About Utah episode, which was provided by our friend Ron Helstern, who died early this year. We'll honor him thereby. And we'll hear a little segment from one of my favorite interviews with New Zealand explorer uh, Helen Thayer. That's coming up. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. We'll uh, we'll change gears now to remember our friend Ron Helstern. Um, wonderful, wonderful man, and uh, very generous to the community. Of course, beloved by his family. Um, we connected with him oh a year or two ago um, to uh, when he approached us about providing uh, some Wild About Utah episodes. Uh, Ron loved the uh, outdoors and felt strongly about protecting our world and our environment. Uh, so we remember now Ron Halstern by listening now to uh, one of his episodes of Wild by Utah. This is Wild About Utah. Most people enjoy watching birds, except for their occasional deposits on cars or windows. In an earlier program, I mentioned at least 15 benefits that birds provide to humans and planet Earth. But as human population and developments increase, the survival of many bird species becomes threatened. Now, as winter approaches, colder weather and lack of food adds to the life-threatening dilemmas birds face. Some birds migrate to warmer habitats, but for those that stay in the northern regions, a helping hand from humans is no doubt appreciated. Presenting gifts of bird feeders and seeds to others and your own family will help songbirds and fowls to survive so that they can provide their songs and beauty in the spring. Consider these tips. Buy large bird feeders so you don't have to fill them so often. Wet seed can grow harmful bacteria, so use feeders with wide covers. If deer or other pests invade your feeders, hang them up higher in trees. Place feeders 10 feet away from dense cover to prevent sneak attacks from cats. 
provide multiple feeders to increase amounts and diversity of foods. Favorite winter foods depends on the species. Black oil sunflower seeds are loved by most birds, but niger, millet, peanuts, corn, and wheat will attract a diverse range of birds. Experiment and see what comes to your feeders. A combination of beef fat with seeds or fruit is called suet. It is a high-energy food which helps birds stay warm. The four-inch cakes are placed in small cages and are loved by flickers, woodpeckers, and many other birds. Peanut butter is also relished by birds, but is more expensive than suet. Once birds find your feeders, they will rely on them for regular food supplies. If your feeders become empty, especially during ice storms or blizzards, birds will have a hard time finding natural food. If you take a trip, have a neighbor keep your feeders filled. Buy extra seed and store it in a cool, dry place like a covered plastic trash can, which can be kept on a deck, porch, or in your garage. Make sure the feeders are kept clean with hot water and then dried about once a month. Some birds, like juncos, tokies, doves, and pheasants, prefer eating seed which has fallen to the ground. Compact the snow below your feeders so that they can find that seed easier. Unless you live near a natural water source, place a pan of water near a feeder on warmer days. Or you could consider a heated bird bath to provide drinking water. If you have fruit trees or berry bushes, Leave some of the fruit on the plants to provide natural foods. You may wish to leave birdhouses and nest boxes up all year for winter roosting sites. Now the fun part comes. After your feeders have been discovered by some birds, word soon gets around the neighborhood and others will arrive. But do you know what they are? The Peterson Field Guidebooks are a great help for beginners because the illustrations are often grouped by color. Then you can become a citizen scientist and submit your observations to Cornell's Project Feeder Watch, or participate in the Great Backyard Bird Count each December. Look online for details. Time to get started with your own feeders, or as gifts to others, and begin enjoying the colorful company of finches, woodpeckers, towhees, juncos, sparrows, doves, and many others. Wild About Utah is brought to you in part by our listeners and the Moab Area Travel Council, promoting off-season visitation and recreation in Moab Canyonlands and Arches. More information on rooms, events, and seasonal opportunities available at discovermoab.com. This is Ron Helstern, and I'm Wild About Utah. So that is an episode uh, by uh, Ron Helstern, our friend, uh, who uh, passed away recently. Uh, we at UPR are very grateful we had association with uh, with Ron, wonderful man. We're going to uh, conclude uh, this episode of Access Utah by uh, going back to the past. Uh, just a little portion of my conversation with New Zealand-born explorer Helen Thayer. This is one of my favorite interviews. This is from 2010. I had a chance to talk to Helen Thayer. Uh, she uh, explored around the world. One of her accomplishments, she was the first woman to travel solo to the magnetic North Pole. Uh, many other adventures. We talked about some of them. Here's just a portion of that uh, conversation. Difficulties. I could make it through, and I did. But there were some really scary moments along the way. Tell us about one or two of those. Well, uh, the first, of course, was when I left, took that first step. When I left base camp, took that first step. I knew that I had not yet met a polar bear in the wild. Now, as part of my planning, I had lived with the Inuit people, for some time, the Masters of Arctic Survival, they know all there is to know about polar bears and so forth. 
But in spite of learning, listening, training, I knew I really had to stand up to that first bear and see if I could do it. Well, the first day there were no bears, I saw lots of tracks. And then, now I must explain too that I was the only human, but I did have my polar bear dog. I bought a fella I called Charlie from the Inuit. His job was to keep the polar bears out of the village and keep the humans safe. So a perfect companion for me. And I named him Charlie, and off we went. And, of course, he loved those tracks. He put his big black nose down in them and tried to follow them. Well, there was no way I was going to follow a polar bear tracks. I would tell Charlie, I know what's on the other end. No way. And so, But it wasn't until the next day. I was taking my tent down around 7 in the morning to start the next day's journey, and suddenly Charlie, who was tethered to my sled, began to growl. And I looked up, and there was my first bear. And she had two cubs at her side. And she was growling. She was very angry that I was there at all. This was not the Arctic Welcoming Committee at all. And I stood there trying to remember everything that I'd been taught. Keep passive eye contact. Don't turn your back, they told me. Don't take a single step backwards. And don't run, because I'd never win the race. Well, I was able to stand and remember what I'd been taught. And it worked. And, of course, Charlie was... um, he went into his defensive mode to defend me and leaping high in the air, snarling and growling. And so the whole thing was working. Charlie was doing his job, as I knew he should, and I was doing mine, as I had been taught. And then about 30 minutes, the, the bear, she turned, took her two cubs away, disappeared into the rough ice. I never saw her again, but now I knew that, although I can't tell you how scared I was, I mean, I, my heart was beating so so loudly and so fast, it's about leaped out of my chest. But in spite of that extreme fear, I was able to remember what I'd been taught. So now, of course, I knew I'd passed that final test, and I, now I knew that I could do it. And I knew how scary it was. And I was very afraid through this journey many times because I met seven bears um, individually up close and uh, up close and personal, way too personal sometimes. But now I knew I could do it. Uh, I was just going to surmise, and you've said it, you, you must have been frightened. You've, you've been taught, you have Charlie, but still, is it going to work? I'm sure that's going through your mind. Well, that's right. You don't know until the final test comes, and this is such extreme fear because I'm well aware that the last sound I could hear in my life would be the crunch of my own skull because that's how polar bears kill their victims and polar bears do hunt and kill humans sometimes so I knew I knew of the danger I, was, I wasn't out there just being totally oblivious and being some dummy oh I think I'll walk to the pole today and oh well the polar bears they're nice cuddly pets aren't they I knew different than that that's why I had to plan and train so completely I couldn't leave anything to chance but now having passed that final test and I and described the fear I don't think there's any way that I can truly ever describe that to anyone. Uh, there's no words to describe the full extent of it. And if I hadn't taken control of myself and basically walked through that door of fear to the other side, I could have panicked and lost control. And, of course, that would have done me in. And a dog like Charlie is, you know, there's a huge difference in size but uh, a dog like Charlie really can be effective against a polar bear? Oh, definitely. These dogs, they choose themselves, basically. They, the dogs are fed seal meat, frozen seal meat. And the polar bears, of course, this is their food, and they, can't, they smell it from a great distance. They come in and try to take it away from the dogs sometimes. And there's a lot of trouble, a lot of fighting. Some dogs just don't survive. Others do survive. 
But Charlie, when he would race to a polar bear, he would approach head on until the last minute. He would whip his body around to the side and suddenly be at the back of the bear and grab his heel and hang on. And if you can just imagine some a very powerful 100-pound animal determined to defend his owner there uh, and hanging on to that Achilles tendon back there, you can imagine how that bear must feel. What were some of the other barriers uh, that you uh, experienced in, in that trip? Well, um, at one stage, I was um, engulfed in an enormous storm. The first time I was engulfed in a storm, winds, according to my wind meter, were around 70 miles an hour. And then the ice began to break up all around my tent. And, of course, my worry at that point was, would the ice break beneath my tent and drop Charlie and I and my tent into the ocean? And being alone... And in those days, remember this was in 1988, I didn't have a floatable sled or an immersion suit or, or any of the wonderful things that I could have now that simply didn't exist at that time. And so if I'd gone into the water, it would have been very difficult to survive. And I had to sit a day and a half in that tent, hoping that that ice would stay intact beneath my tent floor. And the ice was breaking up. I was actually in the midst of a major ice breakup. And you could be ground into little pieces just like the ice. But the ice underneath my tent held fast. And a day and a half later, the winds went down. I was able to step out of my tent. And all around me, the ice was just a mess. Lots of open water. So then I had to take my ski pole, push the little pieces of ice together to make these bridges from one ice pan to another. And very carefully pull my sled across and then carefully pull Charlie's sled across, make another bridge, push the ice together, pile more on top to make it strong enough, and then pull my sled again. And I did this for half a day because I knew if I could go about five miles north, then I would be on thicker ice, according to my charts and so forth. That's uh, part of my conversation from 2010 with the New Zealand-born explorer Helen Thayer. One of my favorite interviews, just an excerpt there. You're listening to KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUSD Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. You're listening to Utah Public Radio.